Hello and welcome to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by the Humanitarian AI Meetup community, linking local groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, Seattle, New York City, Toronto, Montreal, London, Paris, Berlin, Oslo, Geneva, Zurich, Bangalore, Tel Aviv, and Tokyo. I'm Brent Phillips. I manage the series Behind the Scenes, and today I'm going to be guest hosting this interview with Natasha Friedis from Needs List and Jean-Martin Bauer from the United Nations Food Program. We're going to be speaking with Dr. Andrew Schroeder, the Vice President of Research and Analysis for Direct Relief, and Jennifer Chan, an Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. We're going to talk about the war and escalating humanitarian crisis in Ukraine and about the digital future of humanitarian operations powered by data supplied by initiatives like Crisis Ready. So welcome, Jennifer and Andrew. To get us started, can you just tell us a little bit about your background? Thank you, Brent. It's a pleasure to be here. I have a background in emergency medicine, and I'm still a practicing clinician. I describe myself as a humanitarian hybrid practitioner researcher as well. And that is where my affiliation with the Northwestern University as an associate professor is. I also have affiliations with Crisis Ready, for which we'll talk about today. In the past, I've worked with NGOs, other nonprofits, and humanitarian assistance, with about 10 or more years of a focus on humanitarian data and how people use data in disasters. How about you, Andrew? I work for Direct Relief, which is a non-governmental organization that's based in Santa Barbara, California, that focuses on humanitarian medical response. And so, you know, within that, I work on geographic information systems, use of spatial data to understand humanitarian medical need, medical logistics, a number of the issues that we're going to talk about today around uh, how can we put data to work for the sort of full continuum of how we prepare for, respond to, and recover from disasters. And that's the context in which we formed Crisis Ready and with our colleagues at Harvard and have you know, put a lot of work into the use of a number of novel data sources that I think advance that project in some interesting ways. So, You know, we're here to talk about the Ukrainian war and the humanitarian crisis. And maybe on a personal level, can you tell us about the war and the crisis from your vantage points? What's most profound to you about the whole situation and what do we need to be doing and what's making helping difficult? Maybe we could start with that. Andrew. Thanks for the question. You know, I think that challenging part of this war, there are so many actually, it's hard to actually know where to start with it. It's the a sudden shock of the unprovoked nature of the conflict at the scale that it has been practiced across the country of Ukraine. You know, we've we've seen through my vantage point in the medical response, a really dramatic series of shocks to the population ranging from attacks on hospitals and health workers, the disruption of supply chains across the country that have prevented people from accessing food, water, medicine, basic services, the direct attacks on civilian infrastructure, official numbers of casualties that are already significant but are dramatically undercounts. So the system shock in the Ukraine is just just profound. But beyond that, you've seen this massive outflux of refugees throughout the neighboring countries and continuing to grow dramatically day over day. I believe the current count that I, I saw this morning was 1.17 million that have departed into the neighboring countries with another million internally displaced. And 
you know, this is not unprecedented, but it is a, a speed of outflow that is just remarkable in terms of how it's actually taken place and where these folks are going to ultimately end up. Beyond that, I mean, I think it's the sudden reorientation of thinking around this entire part of the world and the role that Europe and the United States play in it. And as humanitarian actors, we sort of sit in the middle of a number of dynamics and we're having to kind of adjust along with everyone else to what seems to be this rupture in history and what that means for our own ability to provide support and response. So, yeah. I could go on, but Jen? I think to your question about, you know, what it means personally, and I think as framing it within data, I always take a step back and say people before data, you know, evolve into the conversation in this podcast about what the data means. I think one of the hard things is to realize that data is so powerful, but really it's a reflection of people, community, and society. And to what Andrew has described that I have been deployed in different disasters, large and small, ones that are not known to most of the world and ones that are. And I think taking on a role in a remote team is incredibly important and challenging for which we'll talk about. But for me, it's also about the history of the time that I've spent working with communities and disasters and not being in that role right now. It is still always a part of me. And so I think that's hard sometimes. How about you, Natasha? How do you feel personally about all of this and what, what's most profound to you? I think it's really just piggybacking on what Jennifer said, the, the idea that all this data is made up of people, you know, and so we've been doing all kinds of assessments on different ways to plug in and deploy over the past two weeks. But yesterday was the first time we actually were doing a live demo for a group of responders inside in Kiev and Odessa. And of course, you're talking about a different level of that's when shit gets real, right? When you're talking to people who are sitting there afraid for their lives. And that's when when you're talking about data security or privacy or breaches, it's, it's all very abstract until you're thinking about the actual people whose lives might be affected if your software is not up to where it needs to be. So that's where my mind is. Sean Martin, how about you? I mean, of course, I agree it's people first and, and that's what's really shocked me and I'm Remember when the Berlin Wall came down, we were all told we would live lives in, in a peaceful world. And unfortunately, that's not happening. But now on, on what this means for the system, we've made for the past decade, two decades, significant investments in data, in IT infrastructure. And I hope, and I'm wondering whether we're going to see the, the benefits from those investments in a crisis like this, because it, it is, this is Europe, it's connected. This is where these systems should really be helping us do our job a lot better. So I'd like to see how that plays out in, in, in this case. You actually just came back from uh, Kabul not so long ago, just a matter of months, and you, you saw that whole situation unravel. And so it must be pretty profound for you to essentially see this happening again, see a huge, huge crisis unfolding in front of you. What comes to mind? What, do you, what was oh. your takeaway from Afghanistan that you're we're the lucky ones, right? We get to come in and out and we're, we're in a lot of security, never have to fear for, um, for our lives or, or the welfare of our children or, or our neighbors. So for humanitarians, it's always, there's always a little bit of guilt. For Afghanistan, uh, UN workers go there, spend a few weeks and then get to, get to go out of the country, but that's not something that's uh, possible for, for the national staff and, uh, and then for, uh, for the Afghan people. And certainly that's always something uh, I personally, 
I'm not always comfortable with. And again, we're, we're in a situation where, I mean, we're here having a talk about what's going on in, in Europe. We're not on the front line and uh, we're trying to help. And we, so we have the easy part. We have the, uh, this, this is nice talking about data and how it can help people, but we're never really exposed to the, I'd say the, the harsh reality, the ugly reality out there. I mean, we, we must've heard it from our grandparents or generations ago, but we will never be exposed to it. We're very, very fortunate. Natasha, before we start digging into uh, Crisis Ready's work and the research and analysis, would you like to share how Needs List was used during the Afghan crisis? Would you like to talk a little bit about the welcome exchange and Needs List and uh, what you're hoping to do with Ukraine? Sure. So Needs List is a software solution that really emerged out of the, the last time that we saw the this kind of numbers of refugees arriving in, in Europe and Western Europe, which was 2015, 2016, I was working on the ground in France and really looking for a better way to communicate real-time needs. And that's what the software does. It essentially allows first responders to post from vetted local organizations to post what's needed where and connect those with offers from INGOs or, or the private sector. And so in the States, we're partnering with Welcome.us, which is really supporting the arrival of Afghans across the country. And so we have hundreds of resettlement agencies throughout the country who are posting everything from diapers to mobile phones to translation services on the software. And then that's being matched with offers of hygiene products from CVS and local organizations who can help locally and Amazon's donating refrigerators and supporting on logistics. So it's been really exciting and we're looking to see how we can support the response right now along the border and inside Ukraine. So um, Andrew, jumping back to you, can you tell us about, just tell us about Direct Relief just for a minute and then Crisis Ready, what the project's all about. So Direct Relief is, a, as I mentioned, a non-governmental organization, 501c3 based in, in Santa Barbara. It's been around uh, since 1948. It was actually founded by Eastern European war immigrants who fled the Nazis during World War II and ended up in California. It focuses on healthcare supply for humanitarian purposes, whether that's ordinary emergencies of poverty and, and uh, lack of access, or whether that's disasters and conflict and situations like we find ourselves in now. Direct Relief is, has been supporting in the Ukraine crisis since 2014. We work extensively with the Ministry of Health and, and have actually just got our first shipment of mobile medical backpacks, which are used to treat casualties in the field into the Ministry of Health this morning into Ukraine. So. You know, we're actively involved in, in that dimension of the response. The Crisis Ready Project was a collaboration that we initiated with colleagues of ours at Harvard University School of Public Health, like Dr. Caroline Bucky and Dr. Sachit Balsari are kind of the other uh, principals that are working on this and focusing in on questions around how do we actually take a lot of these new data sources that have been emerging over the past decade or so, ranging from large-scale social media data, call detail record data, financial transaction data, and data on power outages, you name it, things that come from sources that are collected for other reasons that we can integrate together into a meaningful analytical product to inform the thinking about communities in crisis. And you know, how do we do that technically? How do we do that 
safely? How do we connect with the data providers in a way that makes the most sense? How do we build methodological kind of catalogs so that we're not constantly reinventing the wheel methodologically every time? And how do we then translate that into practice in a way that's mindful of community safety, that's mindful of individual privacy, that's mindful of the kind of affordances of, of the ground level conditions that communities in crisis face, whether that's an earthquake or a, a fire or the situation in Ukraine. And so that's our, it's a sort of joint research and application project in that sense. Jennifer, would you like to just tell us about Crisis Ready and how you got involved in the project? And you have an interesting background and I'm sure there's a story there in terms of how you became part of the team working on this mapping project that we're going to talk about. Yeah, my early interactions with Crisis Ready was during the early part of the global COVID-19 pandemic. And as the CMDN started Crisis Ready, I had reached out to Sasha Carolyn and Andrea and I have known each other for years. <laughs> the other collaborations about a question that I often explore in different ways is, are people actually using this data? And in COVID-19 in particular, mobility data. And so I engaged in a project called the User Feedback Project, which is humanitarian focus, practice focus on trying to collect how people use the data, trying to flip those learnings back to the community so that people could continue to learn around, around you know, how to use this data. I then entered um, a longer term relationship with Crisis Ready last year as an advisor and then have been working uh, quite closely along the lines of the disaster situation report teams, which is part of how we're here today, but always having conversations around one of our pillars, which is translational readiness. It's really understanding, not only through research, but really understanding this arc of how do we understand what the purpose of why we use this data? You know, what are the pitfalls of actually understanding how to use it? You know, envisioning an idea around the use of data is something very different when you're standing in the middle of a response. There are different cognitive load factors, there are different behavioral factors, cultural factors, and it really is a very, difficult space to understand and being able to translate across this arc from information to use to action and decision making is, is from the research standpoint, something very interesting, but I think its core is really in its practical applications so that we can envision the impact and maybe achieve the impact that we, that we put our efforts toward. Natasha and Jean, would you like to ask about this refugee mapping project? What would you like to learn about this project? I'd like Jennifer or Andrew to describe the products a little bit more. I saw some of them online on social media. They looked really interesting. They looked uh, to be very granular products that showed displaced, um, or at least densities of population and changes in population. I'm, I'm sure it would be useful for everyone who's listening to know a little bit more about what these products are. And uh, I'm just curious, what's the data behind? Uh, what's the methodology to get to those those maps we've all seen? I can kind of briefly give you a background on that. I mean, the, the data source is from Data for Good at Meta, formerly Facebook, which we work with closely, we have for many years. And it's aggregated and anonymized from, you know, the user locations of the Facebook application, which in the case of Eastern Europe is actually quite considerable, a very significant user base. And it's measuring number of people in an area at a given time compared to a baseline for 90 days previously. So, so it's evaluating change against baseline for the density of population and then for the movement of population user base 
between one place and another. So there's this density and then there's vectoral movement. So we were using this you know, we began right when the conflict started looking at, does this make sense for trying to understand what might be happening at the border? So reports that everyone was getting were that there would was a significant outflow of people. And so how much and where, and can we look at where are those people going once they come across the border? So we're not, it's important to note that we're not, that when you look at the maps that have been shared, those are not just people that have been displaced from Ukraine. That's all people at the border measured according to the Facebook application. However, it's measured during a period of time when there is an enormous influx of people into those areas and where we can pick up statistically significant change in is happening with the population at those areas and then where they kind of fan out. We also added some data around what's called the social connectedness index, again, from our colleagues at Facebook, which looks at the strength of social ties between people on the platform. So they looked at, you know, for users that were in Ukraine, who are they most connected to on the platform and where do those people reside and what's the spatial distribution of the strength of social ties purely in a networked context on the platform, but translated then into, you know, the distribution over space. And is there a relationship between where you see people moving from the border and this landscape of social connection, which is significant for refugees because what we see time and time again in refugee context is that the most significant response to refugees, the provision of care, shelter, et cetera, comes from people they know. They go to friends, family, supportive communities. That's the first resort for people that are displaced. So that looks like it is happening mostly with exceptions. There's a relationship to like, can you get to the communities that you're trying to reach? There's some issues I think related to, you know, how well off initial refugees may be relative to subsequent waves of people that are more affected by the conflict, may have had a harder time getting out, transportational dynamics, et cetera. But in general, I do think that you can start to see really significant changes, especially in those border areas around communities that are seeing large influxes of people that are coming there and in need of services and need to be factored into how they're going to be responded to. If I could just follow up on that, and one thing our team at Needsless is always thinking about is how data can be actionable or the con connection with between data and action. So I'd love to hear a little bit, maybe from you, Jennifer, in, in kind of an ideal world, what actions would people take? Who would be seeing this data and what would they do when they saw it? My sense of this is the intention of the white maps that you might be seeing on the website, Facebook, Twitter, or as Andrew said, they show areas of blue dots, which describe an increase in density on the side outside of Ukraine. And the intention is to send maybe an augmented signal to people who are looking at lots and lots of pieces of information and from an operational standpoint, this is not intended to be the sole source of knowledge, sole source of information. It really is intended, in my opinion, to be something that helps you augment the things that you're doing during your day. It's something to signal that, oh, now we're seeing actually more blue dots further into Poland. Does that mean I need to have a conversation with my team later? Have we heard anything from anybody from this town that I'm reading on the map? 
I think that is potentially potentially how it can be used. I think it's also notable for us to say that the reasons why you're not seeing any dots within Ukraine has been a decision around the data pipeline, which is by Meta, and has been a decision among our team. And that sort of can lead into a conversation later, if we like, around responsible data practices and team decision-making around disclosure of data, when to use data, when to share data. Can I just piggyback to you on this question around, like, what do we think people might or ought to do with this too? You know, I, I do think that one of the things that is hard to get your head around in a situation like this is how chaotic it actually is. You know, you look at the maps of like with UNHCR, the, you know, the big blue dot and see, oh, Poland is this money, et cetera. And, and it does seem quite orderly. And that's not the way it works at all. It, it's quite chaotic in terms of where people are coming in, what decisions they're making, where they might go, in often hard to predict. I do think that some of the value of trying to get much more specific about where you might be seeing these flows is to start helping to inform that direction of traffic around how far back ought you to plan for distribution of services. There's been a lot of discussion from private sector actors, public sector actors, all of whom, literally all of whom, find themselves totally overwhelmed by the planning situation here that you know, where needs to figure out, are you focused at the reception center where people are coming through? Is that actually what the focus is? Is it actually Warsaw? Is it like people that are like moving pretty far away from these areas? Is it a much wider field than that? People are going into small towns where it's just they're going where they can get to. That's going to change dramatically over time. That is not a single moment. That's a constant iteration. So putting some shape to that kind of set of hypotheses about what do we think we know about what people's behavior will be and then what actually happens and how does that relate to resource allocation is the entry point that we're trying to have here into into helping with you know putting some coordination in place that makes sense here at this scale natasha from working on needs list you're fairly experienced in understanding where where we supply aid for people in need. From your experience, is it communities helping individuals who have taken refuge into their local communities? It, Jean Martin, you work for the World Food Program and you have large humanitarian organizations, you know, shipping tons and tons of aid to specific people for specific purposes. But it, on the grassroots level, communities helping individuals. Natasha, do you do you see like platforms like yours, you know, this data can be helpful for you to sort of triangulate who can help a localized populations based on local capacity to respond. Absolutely. I mean, I think we've seen over the last few years, and especially with COVID, the rise of mutual aid and self-help groups. And this kind of what we're, the way we're thinking about it is really a parallel system of aid. And this parallel system of aid is primarily connected through social media platforms, and that's about it. And so what we're really trying to do is provide a technical infrastructure to connect these organizations to each other in a bit more intentional. And if you can look at starting to integrate some of the data sets, like the kind that Andrew and Jennifer are building into that. That's where you, I think you can really look at predicting what's going to be needed where, and that's, and, and pre-positioning stock and thinking through all these 
broken supply chains. But the reality is, as chaotic as the response is on the ground, I think the technical response is quite chaotic too, and it's quite fragmented. And I'm sure we could get into that as a whole other podcast conversation. From your experience, what does it take to, like, let's say, you know, you're you're in the process of launching Needs List to help Ukrainian refugees, and what sort of work is needed on on the ground by your team to help to make people aware of the platform and connect the dots in terms of finding aid supplies, local aid supplies, and there are a couple of different aspects. Our software is a white-labeled software, so we really, we, the first thing we need is the partner, and ideally it's a partner who has both sides of the marketplace, really a demand and supply. So we've been talking to networks of local manufacturing organizations, both in Eastern Europe, throughout Europe, and inside of Ukraine, as well as to networks of local NGOs, and ideal partners are the ones that bring those two together. So that's one piece of it. There's a whole other piece around. We, our platform is available in 10 languages right now, but um, none of them are relevant. To, no, that's not true. English is probably relevant, but we're, you know, we need to get it into Ukrainian and um, Hungarian and Polish as soon as possible. And, you know, there's a whole piece of uh, technical infrastructure behind that too. So there's the human element, the communications element, the partnerships element, the technical element. And of course, Maybe we could talk a little bit about data privacy and the risks of breaches right now in this context are probably higher than any of us have ever seen before. And in light of what happened with the data breach at ICRC several weeks ago, I'd love to hear from Jennifer and Andrew and Jean as well, how you're all thinking about this. You know, at what point is the risk too high or what precautions are we thinking about? Jean, any thoughts on that? Certainly, it's a question we need to um, to ask ourselves. I mean, clearly, it's on the table. Here at the UN, you do have discussions around cybercrime. There's a treaty on cybercrime that's being prepared, and the incident at ICRC is, yeah, we need to come to grips with it and discuss it. I'll leave it at that. I'd really like to hear what Andrew and Jennifer think about it. I mean, we have a case here where there's a potentially a lot of individual data. I know there are SOPs to make sure they're individualized and anonymized and then probably scrubbed. I, I'd love to hear about about that because it's even more important now that we've had this incident. I'd like to add also that there's talk of setting up humanitarian aid corridors to reach these sort of trapped populations in Ukraine. And it's useful to use data, again, kind of triangulate who needs what, where, how soon and all that. So it it's great to be able to apply this data, but obviously we have to be super careful about that data as well. So maybe the question of Jean's, how does that also apply to IDPs, internally displaced persons and shipping aid to them too? So just to the specific case of, of the data you're looking at in, in this map, I mean, I, yeah, it de-identification clearly, it's it's also highly aggregated. So it it's granular at a 600 meter you know, unit scale, but it's quite aggregated. And I think the importance on that doesn't, so the importance on that is individual privacy is controlled for in this. There, there's really no reverse engineering of individuals out of this type of data. I think the thing to be mindful on that is, and the thing that we struggle with in terms of the use cases in the current conjuncture, you see everywhere, but more so here. I mean, we it's, it's not like these aren't present in disasters, but it's much more so in this particular case, is around community identifying information as opposed to just individual privacy. I mean, a lot of times when you start talking about 
Facebook or you start talking about social media data of any kind, we get a little stuck on the, just the question of individual identity. Individual identity is clearly important, but that's not actually what we're most sort of concerned about here. We're looking at large-scale aggregated patterns in space and time that can inform thinking about resource allocation, policy response, aid planning, things like this, right? So we're, we're trying to plug that into uh, particular thinking streams and use cases. And where do we then encounter places where actually it, to reveal significant information about a community in crisis, given space and time constraints around that community, might actually be not worth the risk or it could be counterproductive. And I think this is where, you know, I mean, I would reference maybe the Google case that happened the other day where highly granular traffic details, because let's remember, you know, Kiev is a quite digitally connected city. Ukraine is a quite digitally connected country. The Google Maps was functioning quite well. And there was concern that you could actually use that as a dual use technology to inform targeting. And so, you know, needing to turn that off, that is a significant question, right? Even though on the flip side, we've had discussions with say folks at the logistics cluster and your colleagues in WFP about, well, it's also important to try to get as real time a sense of say road conditions across an impacted area. Are people actually moving through a particular road? Can we actually use digital signals to be able to determine that? Even if you can determine it, then can you share it? And to whom can you share it with? And what are the storage constraints around that? So the closer you get to the conflict, the closer you're actually literally in the, the data is of literally the people that are being shelled as opposed to people that are on the other side of the border are still in humanitarian crisis, but are in a, in a different kind of military situation. You just have a very different set of, of constraints around that. And I think that we in the humanitarian community have had to really come up to speed and learn how to make those kinds of spatiotemporal community distinctions in a way that does really differ from the release of individual information about a member of a vulnerable community. That I think is, is an evolving conversation. I mean, Jen's really been thinking about this for longer than most of us, I think. So I don't know, do you want to give your kind of two cents on all that? Sure. With all of the great specificity that Andrew is describing, I think overall, it's this holistic approach to looking at responsible data practices. And it's a lot about conversation with SOPs, because I think that transforms itself into team decision-making. We're going to hit the pause button. This is okay for now. All of those things are the body and the, and the essence of responsible data practices, in my opinion. And those frameworks for which some of them have been coming out with, you know, with really well thought of people like Nathaniel Raymond and the Center for Humanitarian Data are good frameworks and early SOPs for which people can build upon and adapt to the context and the teams and the organizations for which they work for. But I see it as some ways from a practical standpoint, two points, cybersecurity systems and process and those touch points. The second is also processes of the people in the teams who use the data, analyze the data, integrate the data, visualize the data, and make decisions around sharing and communicating data. If you take a look at that in its entire framework, it's pretty complicated. But a lot of the ways to thread that together is constant conversations with people around what we do in a certain situation that I think Andrew has sort of described in more detail. The SOPs are helpful, the guardrails are necessary, but the actual practice of it is, in my opinion, a lot about conversations, learning, and a ton of data literacy to be able to achieve it. 
and then try again. Jennifer, I wanted to ask about that. How have you seen this change over the years? We've had maps like this around for different emergencies now. And are you seeing a change in how nonprofits, how agencies are having a dialogue around this data? Are the capacities improving? Are you seeing more data literacy? And where are the gaps still? Where are the areas where people really need to focus to get this right? I think it's changed in a lot of ways with regard to people talking about the policies around it, organizations, some of them putting policies in place, the growth of different roles like you actually see on job descriptions, like a data protection officer that are in some organizations. But I would like to note that those who can speak loudest in the larger organizations often shape the tenor of where we think we are. And I think for very legitimate reasons, there are many other organizations for which even the idea of a data protection officer is not currently yet within the the framework of the organization. But it's not to say that there are individuals who are working on those topics, but we've definitely seen, I think, an evolution around that. Are there still sort of growth room around new communities? Probably a lot in this conversation through new technologies and new ways of working. Would I describe something like landing on the landing pad and sort of trying to figure it out along the way? That is improving, but it is still repeating in my personal experience. And I think that what I've also seen is private actors or private organizations or individuals within their organizations now, seven to nine years later, really being advocates within the private industry talking about their experiences and and being able to work within these organizations to help people learn, you know, about what it means to engage in social good and where some of the complexities are, which is not as again, not only about the data, but it's about, you know, internal organizations and, and priorities and things of that nature. But I think things have changed. One thing that I think is a gap is that and it may be by the nature for my full disclosure of where I spend more of my time remotely now. I don't feel confident that we have enough inclusion around data responsibility in our sector. And it may just be the nature of me not being familiar with it. And I would love to have an answer from somebody in the public to say, you are wrong. But I am not so confident that we have local communities and local organizations and entities being able to help us reshape responsible data practices in a way that really meets the context of where we all seek to to contribute. I'd like to just jump in and ask, how do we balance doing something with data? Like we have a huge crisis in front of us right now and we need, we have data that we can leverage to do more to help, but we also have these sort of other challenges to think about, you know, security and, you know, ethics of using data. And do we need to just go fast now and put that aside or the scale of this crisis is so huge. How do we think about that problem? I think you can do both. I would say like this crisis is huge, but not to sound jaded, but we like have nothing but huge crises these days. We've just been through two years of the plus of the pandemic. And I uh, remember back to March 2020, we used the, a lot of this uh, very similar types of data actually to inform thinking in the pandemic around the creation of physical distancing policies, monitoring of you know how non-pharmaceutical interventions were working, informing public health policy, as, as Jen mentioned earlier around, that was the substance of the COVID-19 mobility data network, which is where a lot of this started. And that was enormous scale, you know, and we decided 
hinted right at the uh, beginning that you have to do both. You have to determine meaning both, meaning ethics and practice and, and kind of methodological innovation at the same time. There's no choice to that, I think. So in the COVID case, for instance, there was a lot of early call for, you know, hey, could you do contact tracing for specific individuals on Facebook and all of these various, you know, could you use Google to monitor like who you walk next to that might have COVID? And, you know, our response on that was, no, you can't do that. And even if you wanted to, it really wouldn't work. We need different levels of analysis. Like we needed aggregating mobility dynamics to like the county equivalent level was from the purpose of monitoring physical distancing enough. And then that actually plugged into models and was combined with other data and could actually then provide a lot of insight. Did we need the most absolutely granular data possible in order, in that case, to understand individual, individual infection transmission? No. And that's partially a methods question. It's partially an ethics question. You don't want to like just open the door to a whole bunch of stuff that you're going to then have to control for, you know, right away afterwards. There was a discussion as to whether the pandemic would itself create digital big brother. I think that it's even more important in the case of a conflict like this, where the number of potential open scenarios, things that could happen in the world from where we're sitting right now, is unimaginably wide. Any number of things could happen at this point, any number of communities could be impacted, and we need to make sure that we're working within structures that we feel confident about in terms of the ethics and the protection and data responsibility and which make a difference. And you have to kind of balance these things because, you know, if you have a ton of protection and you don't make a difference, then that's not good either. So then to Jen's point, which I think is crucial, it's dialogue and discussion and constantly making sure that we have practitioners, researchers, analysts in the room constantly looking at these things, reviewing it with all these frameworks in mind. It's not set at one point. It's an always adaptive, iterative process. That is crucial. Is it 100% right every time? No, I don't think so. But we are absolutely always having these kinds of frameworks in mind when we try to make these decisions. Just a, a few short comments. I think the question of we just have to go this is too big, too bad, we have to do some things, is time and time a common question that I've seen over, over many years. And, and I think as humanitarians, we aim to ground ourselves in supporting the dignity of lives of those who are affected by crises. And I think if we ground ourselves in that sort of perspective and we think about using data, that's where, in order to get there, we have to sort of do the parallels with ethics and responsible data because the intention to do good is not going to ensure that we do so. And if we frame ourselves around the dignity of the people we serve, how do we try to build that, support that, and safeguard it? Data becomes something that's, you know, I think essential to do the ethical approaches along the learning. I think the challenge is, is that we like data to be really succinct. It's not in disasters. It's constantly missing. It's uncertain and it's uncomfortable for us to move forward with that, with that uncertainty. But I think to Andrew's point, it's that constant conversation, which is really this long, long iterative learning process that we're all doing it. We're, we're, we're seeing it at company levels. We're seeing it at data protection officer levels. We're seeing it at operational levels. And if we can continue to do that, ideally the balance points will be achieved hopefully most of the time, 
And I think the feeling that we have to go now and do it yesterday, people actually feel empowered with the data literacy to say, we're holding for 12 hours before we decide to release this data, or let's hold for two days so we can have a discussion about what's happening tomorrow. And that feels more comfortable, I think, when you have all those things in place and you have a team to talk about it. Although it's very different in some ways as an emergency clinician, it is never clear oftentimes in very difficult cases where you go with patient care, but it's your conversation, it's the adaptation, it's the risk and benefit. And we've learned and we have guidelines around why we just can't go and do a procedure without really thinking about it. You know, we think about the risks and benefits and I think there's some commonalities there. Thanks for addressing that. So we're getting close to the hour and Jean and Natasha, thinking about your developers, your IT folks at your organizations, what could you use from crisis ready? What should we strive to do in the short term? Could you benefit from an API with a certain amount of data to use to help to facilitate your response, your, your initiatives? What can we do together here? What are the next steps? What, what do we need on a kind of operational technical level? Well, we're talking about big data. I also think it's worth talking a little bit about little data, which is right now we're seeing this complete uh, reinvention of the wheel of new technologies because there's no good updated database of what's really out there. And I think, and what APIs are out there and what data sets are out there and what smaller technologies have been tried and who tried them and why they didn't work and all of that so that we can benefit from learnings of the past. So I think one next step is to really figure out how can we, we get that going, have that conversation. Uh, Jean, what about you? Well, I was going to say something about the collaborations we need to put in place at the interagency, but inside the agencies as well on how to make the best calls on, on these new data types. They've been around for years, but they're still new. They're not, they're new in the sense that they haven't become routine or mainstreamed. And so that's where uh, the effort needs to go. We need to continue asking ourselves these questions. Be uncomfortable if they were all individual, but by, by having folks like us sit around the table and uh, hopefully colleagues sit around uh, the coffee table at the office or, uh, or on a virtual coffee, you'll understand how to make this work for the people who need assistance. It's a little awkward to ask this question. Normally we, we close our interviews by asking for guests to think about a futuristic AI application and what they'd love to see exist. And we're in the middle of a huge crisis here and Maybe we can think about what we'd love to see exist that could help in this context or in the larger humanitarian context, or what are your thoughts about the future of humanitarian AI and the world you'd love to see ahead and what you'd love to see in it? Maybe Jennifer or Andrew, which of you would like to go first? What I would like to see in the humanitarian sector and as it relates to data and AI is progress toward inclusion. I'd love to see myself replaced with somebody who knows much more than me about this. You can really ground it and pivot it in a different way. I'd like to see a whole set of conversations in a language that I just don't understand and will realize that that's a limitation on my part, but the road is better because more people are included who can really provide a conversation and a way forward where I deeply believe not only teams and data, but the sector itself needs to progress toward high hopes but I'm still a believer it'll happen one day. Yeah, that's a really good one. And I would echo that. I would also say 
I think that I would like to see a future where it's much more feasible to get insights from the kind of work we're doing much more directly into the hands of local actors. There is a disproportion here in terms of, you know, these are passively collected data sources that are at massive scale that require processing to get them into a shape where you can get insight and it's not necessarily the most fit for field context, things like that. And often we find ourselves in the position where it's difficult to interpret what the data is saying. Like it, it requires thought as to what is this signal relative to what I'm expecting to see. So there's this kind of perpetual educational process that has to go on. I think, you know, the faster we can get through that educational process with local actors, the better we're going to be. That way people are asking questions, we're responding to those questions, and we get this down to the scale of specific action by local actors in the field. That is something which is going to require a lot more work, but I think that we can actually get there. Thank you so much for your input, Jennifer and Andrew, and thanks again for allowing us to interview you on such short notice. And I'd like to just close the interview by giving a shout out to folks like Natasha at Needs List and Jean Martin at the World Food Program and also folks at Meta, Data for Good Team, and Facebook has an initiative called Community Help. So for refugees and others out there that are looking for help, that's one platform to look for resources from. Anyway, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. This brings this edition of Humanitarian AI Today to close.